What is most important in life? What is most important in life? That is a very weighty question. But it is a question that each of us answer every single day and often without giving it very much thought. Because the way we spend our time and spend our money shows how we prioritize what is or is not important to us. Perhaps if we are younger, we give time to our schoolwork. Maybe we give time to our family, our jobs. Maybe our time goes to volunteering with our child's team or activity. Our own enjoyment or recreation, our fitness, our health. What is most important in life and how should we prioritize? It's a great question and it's one that a pastor and author answers by looking at our sermon text today. That J.I. Packer served in both England and Canada as a pastor, and in 1973, he wrote a book called Knowing God, and it is one of the best-selling Christian books of the 20th century. And in his book, he writes, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God. Most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. And so that is Packer's answer. Our most important business in life is knowing God. The one true God who knows us intimately and has made Himself known in Jesus Christ. And we see this in our passage today in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. We see that Jesus points us to this very important business of knowing God. So you can turn there, you can find it in your bullets and open up your own Bibles. John chapter 17. We've been going through the Gospel of John. We are nearing the end as we approach Easter. And we go to John 17. Jesus is praying in these verses. In fact, the whole chapter is a prayer of Jesus. Let's hear the Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let us pray. Oh God, we give thanks that you speak to us. That just as Jesus Christ took on flesh and lived among us and spoke to his disciples, so now you even speak in your word. That you speak these inspired words that come from you and they do accomplish what you give them to do. And so I pray, O God, that your word might go forth today in the power of your spirit. And that your word might go forth like rain or perhaps even snow. 
that falls to the earth to bless it and water it and so bring forth life and growth. So Lord, I pray that in spite of my own sin, Your Word might go forth from my mouth, being clearly explained and applied, and that it might fall on all of us, giving us ears to hear and open hearts and minds to receive Your Word, and that Your Word, by the power of the Spirit, might bear fruit in us, that we would indeed know You more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are given this opportunity here in John 17 to eavesdrop on Jesus praying. He's praying, he's praying out loud, and his disciples are like, okay, I guess we're praying with you, but they get to hear it. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at two general principles that we pick up on as we eavesdrop on Jesus praying. And then we're going to see how those two general principles are used by Jesus in his own prayer and what it is he is doing as he prays. So kind of pick out how it is he is praying and then more what it is he is saying. So chapter 17 brings us to the last part of these precious chapters in John's gospel that chapters 13 through 17 are these intimate chapters where Jesus is with his closest disciples speaking to them the night before he dies. And chapter 17 is at the end of that. And the whole chapter is made up of a prayer that has come to be known as Jesus's high priestly prayer. It is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. There are a few other places where he prays very shortly and a few places where we are told Jesus prayed. But this is the longest content of Jesus' prayer. The longest sample of his prayers is here in John 17. And so, I mean, we're listening to Jesus pray. Like, what can we learn? What are we picking up on in these first five verses? Well, I want to look at two general principles as we eavesdrop here. Two general principles that will help us as we pray. So first, I want us to see that Jesus prays for what God has already purposed and promised to do. Jesus prays for what God has already purposed and promised to do. See, most believers at some point wrestle with how God's predetermined plans relate to our present prayers. Well, if God's decided what he's going to do, like, why do I pray? That's a great question. It's something we have to wrestle with. What is the point of prayer? It seems almost as silly as praying for the sun to rise tomorrow. Why would you do that? It's going to, like, that's how this works. It's a fair question. It's going to happen anyway. Why pray for it? But notice that Jesus has none of those objections. He prays for what God has promised to do. He prays, the hour has come. Glorify your son. He is speaking about his upcoming death on the cross. That death on the cross has been part of God's plan from the beginning. And it's going to happen. And yet Jesus still prays for the Father to make it happen. Similarly, in verse 5, Jesus prays for the Father to glorify Him by restoring Him to His heavenly splendor when He ascends into heaven. That's also going to happen. And yet Jesus still prays that God would make it happen. That God's sovereign purposes and His certain promises do not hinder Jesus' prayers 
Instead, they guide and motivate his prayers. Think about our Old Testament reading where King Solomon completed building the temple. And he prayed and he was asking blessing on God's people Israel. Did you catch what he prayed in there? He prayed, may the Lord not leave us or forsake us. Now, you may not know many promises in the Bible, but I hope maybe at some point you heard that. That God said on a number of occasions, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Solomon's like, please don't leave me or forsake me. Dude, he told you that. He already promised that he wouldn't do that. Solomon could have thought, I don't need to pray that. God promised that. No. It made him want to pray that. That God's promises were going to be fulfilled and he is praying that they would be fulfilled just like Jesus does in John 17. How can we pray like that? Praying God's promises and purposes. Well, as a preacher, one of the ways I try to pray is I pray that God's word would go forth. We just did that. God promises in Isaiah 55 that my word will fall like rain and snow and bless the earth, bringing forth life. And so he promises, I'm going to do that. It's like, okay, God, please do that. Please do that which you have promised to do. That if that's how your word works, please bring about the salvation that you promise through your word. It doesn't guarantee that every single person who ever hears it, but it does assure us that God will work in that way. The same goes as parents of children. That baptism is a sign of belonging to God's people. It is no guarantee of salvation. It's no magic water. And yet God is setting his promise, his sign on them. And we are saying, oh God, we recognize that you are saying you want to be the God of me and my children. God, make that happen. You love to be God of your people and their children, the God for many generations. May what is symbolized there on the outside, let that come true on the inside, please. Please. God promises those kinds of things and we pray in line with them. He delights to answer prayers in line with with his promises. Jesus shows us we should pray those promises, even if it seems kind of redundant. So that's the first general principle I want us to see in Jesus' prayer here. The second general principle about prayer is that Jesus teaches those who overhear him when he prays. It's confession time. You may have noticed that pastors have a knack for preaching when they pray. It's kind of something we do. That while we are praying to God out loud with other people listening, we also realize like people are listening. So I better like kind of pray and preach at the same time. And we can sometimes occasionally like fall into many sermons even as we are praying. But you know what? We get it honestly because Jesus did it. Jesus did it right here in these five verses. He does it specifically in verse 3. Because verse 3 does not need to be in his prayer. Verse 3 doesn't need to be prayed to God. Because Jesus is describing what eternal life is. The Father knows what eternal life is. Jesus knows what eternal life is. But it's almost this like, guys, by the way, 
here's what eternal life is. That's what he's doing. He's using his prayer to teach truth. He's not using his prayer to shame people like, please help Janet to be less of a gossip. No, that's not what he's doing. He is teaching. He is enlightening people. He's praying to show truth and priorities. That's what Paul does in his prayers. In most of Paul's letters, he includes snippets of what he prays for them. He doesn't have to tell them that. He could just pray to God those things and not say, hey guys, here's what I'm praying for you. But he shares with them what he prays to teach them, to shape them. We can also do this when we pray with our children, our grandchildren, with a Bible study or small group. We model what it is that we should prioritize, what it is we should ask God for help with. We can do this when we are praying for people who are hurting. Asking God not just for healing, but also for endurance and strong faith. Jesus shows us that prayer can be a teaching tool when we are praying with others in earshot. So those are the two general principles I want us to see that Jesus shows us in prayer. That we should pray for things God has promised, and we can also pray to teach those who hear us around us while we are praying. And so I want us to look at, well, how is he doing that? That's what he's doing, but how is this prayer going in line with that? So first, I want us to consider what it is Jesus prays for, and we can sum it up with that one key word we talked about here with the kids, glorify. That word is used four times in these five verses. It is something that God certainly purposed and promised to do in Scripture. That he promises all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The Psalms are filled with praises and promises that his glory will fill all the nations. The prophets are chastising God's people throughout the Bible that you are not giving God his rightful glory. He will get his glory. And so Jesus is just like, yeah, do that. That thing that you've promised, glorify. Glorify me and glorify you. And so what does it mean to glorify? Well, as we talked about up here, it is to magnify. In one sense, glorify can be to make something beautiful. But when God is already the most beautiful being in all the earth, it's simply then to magnify, intensify the beauty that is there for us to see. John Calvin writes that God's glory is when we know what he is. It is seeing Him for the weighty and worthy being that He is. So glorifying God does not increase His beauty. It reveals Him for who He really is. And in this prayer, Jesus essentially prays a four-step glorification process. He uses that word four times, and He follows like, I want you to glorify this and this and this and this. He's got it right. He's just lining it up. He doesn't do it in order, which is frustrating for preachers like me. But he does do a four-step pattern. And so step one of this four-step glorification process is in verse four. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. I have already done this, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is thinking about all his work on earth, that he came 
the word became flesh and dwelt among people that the glory of God might be seen and known. And Jesus is essentially saying, step one in this glorification process was me being sent and living on earth. That's how I've glorified you. Thank you. And for the next couple days, keep that glorification going. And then in step two of this glorification process, we see in verse one, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. But every time that word, the hour, is used in the Gospel of John, it refers to the cross. It is this impending hour, this, this moment that lies ahead. And so Jesus is saying, we're almost there. Like about 16 hours away probably at that moment from the cross. Glorify me. Glorify me there, Father. Reveal the goodness of the Son on the cross. Reveal my love for my people on the cross. My commitment to justice and holiness. My hatred for sin. My mercy for my own. The cross reveals who Jesus is and what He is all about because it reveals Jesus for who He truly is. So He says, glorify me in that way. That's step two. And so it's glorify by sent, glorify on the cross. And then step three, we see in verses one and two, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That it is through his sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious resurrection that Jesus is now giving eternal life to sinners. And when he gives this eternal life to his people, those people glory God. They give glory to God. They glorify him because now they are seeing God for who he is. They are reconciled to God. And so instead of rebelling against Him, they are rejoicing in His loving care. Seeing God for who He is. Jesus is saying, glorify me on the cross so that I can save all of these people who will then glorify you as they gather and live for you. And so He's saying, step three, that's what I want. And then the fourth and final step of the glorification process is seen in verse five. Jesus says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That Jesus existed with the Father and the Spirit in glory for all eternity before the creation of the world. But he left heaven. He was sent and he took on human flesh, humbling himself, setting aside his glory so that he could save his people. But when that's done, he prays for the Father to bring him back to heaven. To restore him in the splendor of his glory now that he is done. And so Jesus ascended into heaven in his resurrected body where even now he is fully glorified and revealed as our righteous and faithful Savior. And so looking at what Jesus prays, this four-step glorification process, it's essentially Jesus and all he has done. Step one, I was sent to glorify you. And I went to the cross where I have been glorified 
And we have seen what I care about for my people most. And I have brought salvation to people who will glorify you, O God. So now I can return to heaven and I can be glorified. He is praying for this great plan of redemption that he is about to finish to be accomplished and completed. Because he knows that nothing better reveals the glory of God than what Christ has done and who Christ is. That is how he is most magnified. That if you want to see who God is, that's it. It's everything about Jesus. All he came to do His death, His resurrection, His life, His ascended body in heaven now. Jesus prays for this. It's going to happen. God decided it from before the beginning of the world, and yet He is praying, this, O God, is my heart's desire, that our plan would be complete. And so Jesus prays for that. He's praying what God has promised to accomplish. And as He prays for this glorification, Jesus does just sneak a little bit of teaching in in verse 3. Just... Just a hint for the disciples' benefit and for our benefit. And so he teaches them about knowing God. How does that connect with the prayer to glorify? Well, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Well, if God is glorified when he is known rightly... All who receive eternal life also receive right knowledge of God. See, the knowledge of God is something we must receive. God must make Himself known. We cannot explore to find God. We cannot travel through jungles and mountaintops and caves to learn about God and know Him rightly. We would be lost. God must make himself known. In Packer's book, Knowing God, he writes about how the more complex the object, the more complex the knowing of it. If you think about it, you can know your way around this building after a couple hours. I mean, you still might not know what's in every closet and what where this is or that is, but like... If you were here for the very first time and you were here for like an hour or two and someone asked you, hey, where's the bathroom? You'd be like, oh, it's down there. You'd get it. You would know it. A building is not hard to know. Now, let's imagine you come over to my house and you meet my dog that is scared of people. Lucy does not like people. She alerts us to the presence of people. But after about a day or two, you'd get to know Lucy. You'd know what makes her tick. You know that she eats her food on the carpet and not in her bowl. You know that she likes to be petted but not brushed. You know that she can hold her, you know, bladder for like 15 hours. She's great, okay? You would know her. It would take a couple days. Now, imagine you'd want to get to know one of my friends. That would take a lot longer. It would take years for you to get to know one of my friends as well as I know my friends. And my friend would need to want to be known by you. That's a very hard knowing of that person. See, my friend could kind of keep things back. 
stay somewhat hidden, concealed, if they didn't want to be known by you. Now imagine my friend is a very important person who has authority over you. That person really doesn't need to open up to you. Not at all. My friend is Jesus. And you need to get to know him. It's up to him to make himself known. And he does. God chooses to make himself known to us. We do not have to search him out. He wants to be known by us. What a privilege. But the beauty is it goes both ways. Consider the fact that I think, maybe not the youngest of us in here, but I would say everyone in here knows the President of the United States. We know who he is. We might have heard him talk. We might have known some of his background. We might know some of his mannerisms, some of his strengths, weaknesses, whatever those may be. We might know something about him. He doesn't know you. None of our presidents probably know you. At all. They know they have people they rule over, but he doesn't know you. God does. God is not only known by you, but as Paul writes in Galatians, we are known by God. And it is because he knows you that he has made himself known to you. A mutual relationship of knowledge that God initiates this. He gives us eternal life. And when we think about eternal life, we tend to think about everlasting life. Essentially a tombstone with a birth, but no death. That's what we think about when we think about eternal life. We think of everlasting life. We think of avoiding the punishment of hell. And yes, eternal life involves those things. But those blessings flow from knowing who God really is. That when we know God as he has revealed himself in Jesus, we get the first taste of eternal life. That we get to know God rightly, right now. One commentator writes that eternal life is this entirely new spiritual condition, living with the right knowledge of God. See, as our New Testament reading showed, when we do not know God rightly, we end up treating other things as God. We end up enslaved by this false knowledge. Just think of Eve in the Garden of Eden who was deceived by the serpent to wrongly know God, believing that God was keeping good things from her and her husband. Losing sight of who God really was led to slavery and sin. It is only when we know God rightly that we are freed from that slavery. And that can only happen for those who receive eternal life. And as we heard in our assurance of pardon from John 3.16, eternal life is yours if you believe. God sent His Son that we would believe in Him and receive this eternal life. Not just everlasting life, not just escape from hell, but eternal life knowing God in His glory. Knowing we have a holy God who is merciful towards sinners as we see in Christ's death on the cross. Knowing we have a glorious God who's like, I want want you to know me. He has made Himself known and knows us. So let us pray that we would know God more, seeing Him in all His magnified glory as the Spirit reveals Him through His Word. And let us pray that others who do not know God would come to know Him 
as we make him known to them, sharing how Jesus was sent to live and die and rise again to save. And our Jesus now reigns in heaven. And let us pray for the day that we get to see Jesus in all his glory, captivated in wonder by his beauty and his goodness, enjoying the foretaste now of knowing that we already have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that you make yourself known, and I pray that we would know you, that we would know you rightly. Keep us from false and deceived and twisted knowledge of you and lead us in right knowledge. God, we pray that you would help us to make Jesus known to those who do not know him. To be faithful witnesses, to to magnify him as we glorify him by sharing that gospel message and by living as his disciples. Help us, O Lord. And we pray that you would fulfill your promises that eternal life would be given to all who believe. I pray in this room today that you would help us to believe in you. That we would all believe in you and so have eternal life and knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.